Hello, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? It's good to see you. Hey, just a couple of housekeeping matters. Um, if someone happens to text you during the gathering and say, hey, the, the live stream's not up, I'm not be able to get it, we know that. There's, we're having internet problems in the building right now. So uh, I just wanted to alert you guys to that in case somebody you know texts and say, hey, there's a problem. We're aware of it. What's gonna happen is we'll, we're recording the gathering today. Chris will have a little producing he'll need to do to it and it'll be posted later on today. So just so you guys know, in case someone you know is anticipating to, to tune in live right now, they're unable to. So um, just want to let you know about that. The other thing is the tape on the chairs, as I said last week, that was put there by Crestview because they have summer, summer school uh, this time of year. So tomorrow they'll have some kids in here and they did that so they could socially distance. So we're going to put the tape back we took off. I would just ask if you could uh, try not to make tape balls and start throwing them at people in case you get bored during the sermon today. I would appreciate that. Um, we're going we're gonna to be in Esther today, the book of Esther, chapter 5. So if you would turn there with me. Um, we have a, re a really long passage this morning. It's a great passage, uh, but it's a very long passage. Uh, I'm ready to go, all masked up and prepared. I got a brand new mask that is supposed to keep my glasses from fogging up, but it didn't work. So I put on shaving cream on my glasses. I was told that would work, and that doesn't work either. So we'll see how this goes. I may be doing this. It's all good, though. It's all good. It is all good. We're, we're amongst family. As you guys turn to Esther chapter 5, and we're going to begin this morning in uh, verse 9. Um, let me give a brief recap of where we're, where we're at in Esther this morning. Last week, um, we learned that, that Queen Esther was going to risk her life um, by defying the law and asking for an audience with the king so that she could intercede on behalf of the Jewish people, of which she is one. The king doesn't know this, but she is a Jew, and she is queen, and um, she wants an audience with the king so that he could change the decree. He's gonna, she's going to ask him to change the decree that all the Jews are to be annihilated. Okay? And this request came about, as you may remember, as a result of the destructive pride of a single man, Haman. The destructive pride of Haman, who is the king's right-hand man, because another man, Mordecai, the Jew, Esther's father, kind of her surrogate father, uh, I think he's a cousin, but when her parents died, he essentially adopted Esther. But because Mordecai, the Jew, refuses to bow down to Haman, Haman is asking, or has asked the king to issue a decree to annihilate the Jews, and the, the king agrees. So Esther, we find last week, is willing to sacrifice her life to intercede on behalf of the people of God. And what we learned last week is this is where we see the shadow of the cross, because Jesus is a better Esther. Right? It's very important for us to, to grasp that, that during difficult times, regardless of whether we're in a pandemic or not, during difficult times in our lives, the call isn't for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The call is not for us to suck it up. The call isn't for us to look at Esther and try to be like Esther or better than Esther. The call is to collapse on the one who intercedes on our behalf, and that is King Jesus. Which isn't working so well. Last week, Esther delays her request. 
She comes before the king, he grants her an audience, and rather than asking for this important request to save the Jews, she rather asks and invites him and Haman to a feast. And so last week we see the scene of the feast, but she doesn't ask for her request during this first feast either. She invites them to yet another feast. And that brings us to our text today. We're in between the first feast and the second feast. You would, you would think that we would, that we would be going right into the second feast where Esther would make her request known to the king. After all, what's at stake here is the annihilation of a race of people. What's at stake here is the annihilation of the messianic line. So it's heavy stuff. It's real drama. But this isn't what happens in the next scene. We have to wait till next week to actually hear what happens during the second feast when Esther will submit her request to the king. Instead, what we hear today is, is an interlude of less than 24 hours of time that has life-altering consequences. So that sets up really briefly our passage this morning. I'm going to pray for our time. And I'm going to read this passage, and then we'll spend some time talking about the implications of it. Lord, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So let's turn to Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. This is what the story reads. And Haman went out that joyful that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to, said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. 
And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king, that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry then, take the robes and the horse, as you, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And this is the word of the Lord. This is a highly dramatic scene. Highly dramatic scene. There have been plays about it. In fact, my kids have been in uh, Esther twice. One time my son was the king, and one time my daughter was Queen Esther. So there's a lot of drama involved in this particular uh, book and in, in this particular scene as well. Esther has a plan. Esther has a plan that she wants to save an entire race of people, her people, the Jews. Haman has a plan. Haman wants to see that race annihilated. In fact, he can't wait. He wants to commence immediately by killing Mordecai the Jew. Essentially, what we have today in our text are three scenes. I want to describe these to you a little bit, and then we'll kind of talk at the end a little bit about our application. But in our first scene, we have Haman's contempt for Mordecai. Haman comes out of that first feast, and he's happy. He's joyful until he sees Mordecai once again. And his intense, destructive Rage for Mordecai flares up all because this man will not bow down and honor Haman. But this time, Haman restrains himself and he goes home. And while he's home, he gathers his friends and he gathers his wife around him for the sole purpose of reminding them how great he is. He recounts how rich he is and how big his family is and how important he is, but even those reminders aren't enough to calm him down. The only thing that soothes Haman's evil, wicked pride is when they suggest that they kill Mordecai. 
that they hang Mordecai, that they build an unusually high gallows of 50 cubits, which is about 75 feet high, unnecessarily high to hang someone on. And yet that's what they suggest. And so they immediately commence building the gallows on which to hang Mordecai. Now remember, Mordecai's a Jew. Mordecai's already sentenced to die, like all the other Jews are, months later. He will die. This is an existing decree of the king that all Jews be destroyed. But Haman's contempt and his selfish pride is so great and all-consuming, he simply cannot wait. He cannot contain his anger. His pride is so controlling that even all of his wealth his position in the court, and even the blessing of his large family is worth nothing to him. Can you imagine being his family and hearing that you're worth nothing to your father unless someone else is dead? Think of the pride that's involved in that in, in Haman's heart. So this is the first scene, and it closes and the gallows are beginning to be built and Haman is finally quite pleased with that. And so the second scene is is this unusual scene of the king's insomnia. It's nighttime and the town is asleep. Esther is sleeping because she has a big day ahead of her, right? She's preparing a feast and she is gathering, she is um, resting so that she can get up in the morning, prepare this feast where she's going to ask this big question of the king for the deliverance of her people. Mordecai is finally settled down, falling asleep, potentially to the sound of the construction of the giant gallows. And as far as they're both concerned, when they wake up in the next morning, each one of them will will move forward with their individual plans for that particular day. But something unexpected happens. And it's something that is seemingly very small, something very ordinary, something very insignificant, yet it changes the course of of history, at least the course of one man's life. The king cannot sleep. The king cannot sleep. He has insomnia. And so the king does what all, what all of us do when we can't sleep. He has somebody read to him. The most boring possible book that he could find, which in this case was the book of memorable deeds, which is simply a recording of what's going on in the king's court day by day, something perhaps like minutes of a meeting. And at some point in the middle of the night, uh, it's read to the king about how Mordecai the Jew revealed this plot about two of the king's guards and how they were going to assassinate him. Now, keep in mind, this would have been a five-year-old record. It was five years ago that this took place when Mordecai identified the coup against the king. So all that to say, this, rec- this reading of the, of the deeds probably went on for quite some time, and by now we're probably pretty late in the evening or, or really, really early in the morning. And so perhaps rather sleepily at this point, maybe the king hears this recount, and he asks the question, how did I honor Mordecai again? And they say, nothing's been done for him, O king. And by this time, again, early in the morning, Haman has come to be in the court, wanting to get an early start, to see the king, to ask him and suggest to him that Mordecai be hanged in the court. So when the king asks, who's in the court? He wasn't expecting Haman to be there, and yet he, here he was. What Haman could not have possibly have known was what the king was about to ask him. So the king says, bring him in here. 
And Haman, probably thinking this is awesome, this is perfect. We're going to get this taken care of first thing. Gallows are going to be done. Mordecai is going to be dead by noon. But before Haman can make his request, the king asks Haman a question. He says, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman's like, he's got to be talking about me, right? I'm a pretty awesome guy. Who else would the king want to honor besides me, his, his right-hand man? So Haman commences to describe in great detail what the king should do. All the while, the thought bubbles are in his mind, and he's picturing himself on the horse with the robes and the crown, waving to the crowd, and how great I am, right? Praise is being sung to Haman. And he describes all of this in great detail, and he says, O king, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. All the while thinking, obviously, it's me. But the king has other plans. In what has to be the ultimate jaw drop moment, he tells Haman, great, hurry then, and do all of what you have just described for Mordecai the Jew. The dramatic music starts and the curtain falls on the second scene. The third scene is where we see Mordecai's honor and Haman's mourning. Now, the text doesn't describe what Haman's reaction was in that moment, but we can just imagine what's going on inside of this man's soul by this time. Haman is consumed with hatred against Mordecai because he won't show him respect. So Haman arranges to have him hanged, and as it ends up, Haman has to parade Mordecai around town shouting his praises all because the king had a sleepless night. It's crazy. So Haman does as the king says, and, and after it's all said and done, Haman runs home, mourning with his head covered in shame, and he has to be thinking, what on earth just happened? How in the world did I go from having this man hanged to honoring him above myself? But it gets worse. Instead, his friend, instead of his friends consoling him and encouraging him and saying, you're a great guy, you got a big family, you're wealthy, you got a prominent position, they tell Haman, you know, Haman, if Mordecai really is of the Jewish people, he's gonna, you're going to fall. This isn't going to go well for you. You're going to fall before him. And the curtain falls on this scene. And as it does, the king's men rush in and they whisk Haman off to that second feast that he's so happy to go to and so proud to go to that the, Esther, the Queen Esther is going to ask the king for the deliverance of the people. And that's the end of the story. It's an interlude of less than 24 hours that occurs between this, the first feast and the second feast whose sole goal is for the queen to ask the king to reverse his decree and not annihilate the messianic line of the Jews. What does this mean for us today? <clears throat> what's, what's the point of this? What, what do we need to see? How do we see the gospel in this story? Well, I think we need to see our story today in the context of a reversal of events through ordinary means. 
he doesn't know it, but, but Haman, if Haman gets his way with the king, and we have no reason to believe why he wouldn't get his way with the king, but if he does, Mordecai is going to wake up in the morning and he's going to die prematurely. He's going to be hanged on gigantic gallows. And if that happens, who knows what's going to happen with Esther's request. And instead, we see, instead of what, what we see is a sudden reversal of circumstances that begins in our story with these words, on that night, the king could not sleep. Now, this is important. As you guys read narrative stories, whether, whether it's in scripture or, or perhaps if you're a reader of, of good stories or good fiction, uh, you know that, that in most drama, dramas, a reversal of events like that typically come about at the highest point of tension. And it typically comes about with, with two of the, the major players in the story, like the protagonist and the antagonist or some version of that. And that's typically where we see changes happen in stories. But that's not what we see here today. Instead, the point on which the entire story in our text today hinges is on the fact that the king has insomnia. Think about it. If the king has a restful night's sleep, Mordecai is hanged the next day. And who knows what becomes of Esther's request. But God... But God, who's never mentioned once in this story, but who is rich in mercy nonetheless, always has other plans. Being rich in mercy because of his great love for his people, he is a God of great reversals, and his timing is always perfect. God directs the flow of human history, often, not always, through ordinary means, through ordinary lives of ordinary individuals and ordinary events to fulfill his extraordinary promises. Now, the king's no ordinary man, but insomnia is a rather ordinary thing that befalls human beings. And so God directs the flow of human history through these ordinary means for the purpose of advancing his extraordinary and, and fulfilling his extraordinary promises. And I think that's what we need to hear today. And here's why. The reason is because in the year 2020 that we find ourselves and everything that goes with it is more than half over, as crazy as that may seem. And I would submit to you that, that this year has moved from the extraordinary to the ordinary. Now, some of you probably don't agree with that. And some of you are probably like, Craig, this, this year is nothing like an ordinary year. But I, I want to I push back on that a little bit because of this pandemic and all that goes with it. Racial tension and all that goes with it. Political upheaval, election year, and all that goes with it. And all of that is tied up and, and rolled together in one big ball. All of this... All of this has done is expose what is already inside the human heart. That's all that's taken place. Your heart, my heart, it's all been there. It's all been hidden a little bit, not completely, of course, but this year has shown a fresh light on the darkness of the human heart. A lot of times that happens to us as individually. Rarely do we have an opportunity to collectively experience that as a church. That happens, though. 
never do we have the experience as a world. And that's what's been happening. A light has been shined on the darkness of the human heart on a global scale. And it's ugly. It's very, very ugly. And it's not going away anytime soon. It's been a part of our lives since Eve took a bite of the fruit. And it's going to continue until the Lord returns. The question is, what do we do with this? As followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus whose hearts have been changed by Christ, whose hearts are continually shaped by Christ, and and I hope are committed to the mission of Christ, what we have to do and what we have to believe is to show the world that we believe that in this new normal, it's merely a reflection of the fall and that it's God who directs the flow of human history through ordinary lives of ordinary individuals and ordinary events to fulfill his extraordinary promises. Now, I want you to to stick with me on this. All over Scripture, we see the miraculous, right? We see God doing amazing things. We see a, a parting of the Red Sea to rescue a people all the way to Jesus raising people from the dead. But for the majority of us, our experience is seeing God working through ordinary means of our lives. But we miss it. And I think we miss it because our expectations are often that we want to see big things. We're infatuated with the big, the bright, and the shiny. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray big. We should pray big. And we should expect God to do big things and to move in big ways because he still does work that way. But there's a part of me that often doubts that God can and will work in big things or, or that he'll bless me enough to, to, for, to allow me to witness that. But my experience, and maybe it's your spirit experience as well, when I don't see God working that way, I become too easily discouraged. I become discouraged by the ordinary and the mundane, and the slow, and the small, and the not-so-quite-shiny and bright things of life. I become discouraged by the same old, same old. But rather than choosing to trust God in those moments, and that he is working, and that he wants to use me, even in the ordinary, and perhaps especially in the ordinary, rather than choosing to see my life and the hand of God in my life that way, I let the ordinary become boring. And when boring sets in, apathy is right there with it. And when apathy sets in, and even before it does, I begin to doubt, and I begin to not trust that God is up to something so much bigger than me. This is not my movie, and this is not your movie. And I am not the star, and you are not the star. And yet every day we wake up and we think that we're going to hair and makeup to be the star of our show, and nothing could be farther from the truth. This is God's big picture. I'm really sorry I keep doing this. This is God's big picture. And I forget that I'm just a small fish in a big pond. 
I'm just a small part of a bigger picture. I'm a tiny strand in God's grand tapestry that one day will be revealed as a beautiful display of God's glory. All I need to do is be like Dory and keep swimming. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. And when I fail to believe, and when you fail to believe that God is working in our lives through ordinary, when all we're interested in is the big and the fast and the bright and the shiny, things of ministry, things of, of relationships and life itself, what we have done is we've made it all about us and not what God is doing. And when that happens, we create a breeding ground for the sin of pride. I don't think I need to convince you guys too much that nothing is uglier in this world than sinful human pride. Ask Haman. Read the story of Haman. Read between the lines a little bit. Reread the story and feel the rage that comes out of this man's pride. All we have to do is look at Haman today and just see how his pride ate him up. As I was reading this and studying this week, it, it occurred to me that the book of Esther, and particularly this, this section, uh, is simply an exegesis of Proverbs sixteen eighteen that says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. All this, all this passage does is unpack that for us. And I don't know about you guys, but 2020 has working overtime on exposing my pride. This year has revealed in me hidden motives and beliefs and attitude, attitudes. It's exposed a heart that at times is guilty of believing false assumptions about people and about circumstances, and it's exposed petty jealousy and discontentment as well as harsh judgment. And I don't know if you're with me on that, but that's me. That's my confession. Pride is ugly, but it's not just ugly. Pride is also quite deadly. It's destructive, and it causes us to fall hard. Pride is one of the few things that God actively opposes in Scripture. James 4 says God opposes the proud. Scripture doesn't say many things that God is actually flat out opposing, but pride is one of them. So we should pay attention when we see a story or a text where we see prideful behavior and we see its consequences, and we should be not so quick to just point a finger unless that finger is pointing back at ourselves. Anything God opposes like pride, is bound to be a gigantic burden on our souls. How can it not? Our, all of our experiences at some point, if we're honest, is feeling tension that we can, if we look back and perhaps even in the, mo in the moment, we can recognize that tension comes because of our own pride. And, and that makes me wonder that when I'm feeling burdened, how many times is it because of my own pride that's cloaked in self-righteousness? Now, there's good burdens. God places good, holy burdens on us, to be sure. But there are wicked burdens as well. 
And I would encourage you to do the work and think back when you're feeling a burden. Is it a godly, holy burden, or is it something that is simply tension and weight and burden because of your pride that's wrapped in a cloak of self-righteousness? But there's good news. We see in the book of Esther, just like we saw last week, this week we see a shadow of the gospel. We see a shadow of the cross. You see, there's a great reversal in Esther that's a shadow of the bigger reversal of what God is doing, both in history, but also what he's doing in your life and in my life today, right now. I mean, just consider the gift of God's grace through the means of what looked like certain defeat. Today in the book of Esther, we see a man go from certain death to a parade in the streets, right? That's what we see happen to Mordecai. A death sentence, and he ends up being paraded through the streets. In the gospel, we see Jesus going from a parade in the streets to a death sentence. The crucifixion of Jesus looked like certain victory for Satan, who most, must have been gloating on that day. On that fateful, earth-shattering afternoon, Satan had to be gloating, thinking, victory is mine. And for those present at the crucifixion at the foot of the cross, part of their mourning, part of their sadness was, what on earth is going to happen now? Our Savior has been defeated. There is no longer hope. It looked like ultimate defeat. But God, who is rich, in mercy and loves us deeply three days later in what was not an ordinary event led a divine reversal and it was cosmic in scope death was defeated and jesus rose from the dead and defeated satan sin and death and victory was proclaimed by jesus as he rolled the stone away and by that act of love and obedience by Christ, taking our place on the cross, our sins were atoned for. Hope was once again restored. And listen, grace was given to you and me. Grace was given to you and me. And that's grace that we can now live by, especially in 2020, with all of its swirling chaos. Listen to this. Without God's grace, we are all Haman, seeking only what cannot satisfy and what is to our detriment. We should see Haman in this text, and we should be terrified and beg God to save us from ourselves and our awful pride. I, I was, I'm not really that clever when it comes to turning a phrase, but We've been talking about Esther being, um, our Jesus being the better Esther, right? And we've said that before in, in other contexts of Scripture that we've used because we see types and shadows, right, of Christ, and Jesus is the better Esther. And I was toying around with something like, like, without the grace of God, we are the better Haman. Now, that doesn't sound right, right? But you get my meaning, right? W without God's grace, we are the better, worse Haman. How about that? That's how deep and destructive pride is. We get a picture of Haman's pride here, but we're just as likely to have that same pride with similar results. Paul Tripp 
says this, grace not only forgives you, but enables you to live for something hugely bigger than yourself. In other words, God's grace strips away our pride. Grace causes us to fall in love with Jesus more deeply, to follow him more sincerely, and to be changed by him more willingly. And that all results in a grace that doesn't terminate on ourselves because this isn't our story, but it's a grace that loves others in the midst of and especially during the most difficult moments of life. When we want to turtle up and not love because we're feeling stress and anxiety, that's when God can use us the most. This grace compels us to engage his mission more joyfully. As I said last week, Sam ended by saying that Jesus is the better Esther on whom we collapse. And this is what he said, because he interceded on our behalf. We're all familiar with this idea of Jesus's intercession. The beautiful thing about Christ's intercession on our behalf is that it's continual. Hebrews 7.25 says that consequently he's able to save to the uttermost because we sin to the uttermost. It doesn't say that. That's my addition there. Those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is seated right now at the right hand of the Father interceding on behalf of you and on behalf of me. But the way I want to sum things up today is by saying that Jesus is indeed the better Esther on whom we collapse, but not just because he's our intercessor, because he's our advocate. And there's a distinction that I want to end with on this. 1 John 2.1 says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the hope. That's the intent. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hmm. The difference between Christ's intercession and Christ's advocacy is this. Intercession is something that Jesus is always doing. Praise God for that. Advocacy is something he does when the occasion calls for it. The reason I want to make this distinction is because in, this, in the past six months, right, um, what has been stirred up inside of me, this ugly, prideful emotions and actions um, like it has at times, uh, there's, a place, there's a place to put these. There's a place to put sinful pride. We don't have to go into deep, dark places of defeat because Jesus in those moments is our advocate. Jesus is the better Esther because he advocates for us. Because when we sin, he advocates to the Father on our behalf. As we sang and as Chris read, he wants to take our burden We don't have to hold on to them. We don't have to let them destroy us. There's freedom to be found in Jesus. Chris and Sarah, you guys can come up. I'm going to begin closing this way. As our intercessor, what happens is Jesus steps in between us and God. 
and he's always doing that. But here's what I want us to know about Jesus as our advocate or as our advocator. And, and listen to this because it's really important. It speaks to the heart of who Jesus is. Jesus as our advocator puts his arm around us and he walks with us because he's a friend of sinners. Feel the weight of that. You know what's going on inside of you. You know what the last six months have dug up in your soul. You know what the last six minutes, perhaps, has dug up in your souls. And yet Jesus comes alongside of you, and he puts his arm around you, and he advocates for you because he is your friend. He's not a distant intercessor just at the right hand of God, as glorious and as true as that is. He's also next to you with his arm around you saying, come to me. Let me take that burden. Let me take that pride and whatever else it is you're dealing with because my yoke is easy. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you, what you do or who you are. Jesus is your friend. He's a friend of sinners. So don't give up and don't give in. As followers of Jesus, we are all imperfect disciples. And 2020 has shined a spotlight on much of that ugliness in our world. It shined a spotlight on the ugliness in the church, in our church, and in the church, global, universal. And that's because it shined a light on the ugliness of sin in our own hearts. But God, when we deserved certain death, sent a perfect Savior, and His advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sin. We're going to transition into a time of reflection now. And what I want to do is I want to read from um, a, a short passage from a book that has been particularly good for my soul. Many of you have heard me say this before. The book, the book is called Gentle and Lowly, and the, the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. What I want you to do is I want you to respond in this moment. Just in your place, close your eyes, listen to these words, and then we'll just have a brief time where you can reflect, you can pray, you can confess, you can acknowledge that Jesus is your friend. He's not your accuser. That's Satan's job. So consider your own life. How do you think about Jesus' attitude toward the dark pocket of your life that only you know? The overdependence upon alcohol, the lost temper time and again, the shady business about your finances, the inveterate people-pleasing that looks to others like niceness, but which you know to be the fear of man, the entrenched resentment that bursts out behind the back, in, in behind the back accusations, the habitual use of pornography. Who is Jesus in those moments of spiritual blankness? Not who is he once you conquer that sin, but who is he in the midst of it? The Apostle John says he stands up and defies all accusers. Satan had the first word, but Christ the last, wrote John Bunyan. Satan must be speechless after a plea of our advocate. 
Jesus is our paraclete, our comforting defender, the one nearer than we know. And his heart is such that he stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not after we get over it. In that sense, his advocacy is itself our conquering of it. We are indeed called to forsake our sins, and no healthy Christian would suggest otherwise. When we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as a child of God. We invite misery into our lives, and we displease our Heavenly Father. We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord. Truer consecration, new vistas of obedience. But when we don't, when we choose to sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not forsake us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with the resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all our messiness. Ponder Jesus Christ as your advocate. Lord, we thank you for this time. This is your time. We are honored by your presence. And we bow before you in humble submission and contrition and ask you to take our hearts and shape them and mold them into the image of our Savior so that we would love you more deeply, more faithfully, and turn our lives over to you so that we could love others like we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.